It's almost been five years now. Uh, Lord has got a way of humbling people, and I was very humbled. I had about, I had lost Debbie, you know, and we, uh, I had about lost my house. It was in foreclosure. Um, I was starting a brand new job. I was, I needed something in my life, and I knew what it was because when I was a kid. I was raised in a in a Christian church, uh, but I got away from that probably about 14 years old or so, and, and uh, I thought that the world was an awesome place, and that's where I wanted to be. And I lived in the world for many, many, many years, and I led Debbie down a very, very, very bad road, and uh, we broke up. Uh, we were separated for six years, divorced for one year. We led the world in Satan. Tears apart. We was apart for six years, divorced for one. And during that time, we hated each other, loved one another. There's a thin line between love and hate. And you know you're meant for somebody if you can stay around them long enough to say, I just really don't like you right now. And when the divorce papers come down, that's when I realized what a special person I had here. Uh, there was not really anybody else out there that that I could ever live my life with, you know. And but to the Lord, I, I went back to the Lord, and I'd begun to be kind of lonely, and I needed somebody to help me in my walk. And uh, I'd even prayed, you know, for the Lord to send me someone. But I'd looked, you know, and it just I didn't think there was anybody out there. I was afraid I was going to be alone the rest of my life. You know? And uh, I came here to uh, work on a church for just a couple of days. And me and my son was out taking break on my tailgate of my truck. And here come Mike, you know, he come over and talk to us, you know. And so I asked him a few questions and I was like, well, I might as well try it and I'll see what it's all about. Yeah, and uh, I came the following Sunday. It was like Mike was talking directly to me that I was the only person in the room. I was looking for a church home and... Uh... God just kept putting it on my heart to talk to Jack, talk to Jack, talk to Jack. So our kids, the love of our kids, kept us in contact through, through this whole mess. So he started telling me about Grace Point. And from that point on, we started talking to each other more and, and, and overlooking the things that we let get in our way all those years. And by the grace of God, here we are. And I've been home ever since. Wow. What an amazing God story. God has been writing God's stories, and it's, that's just, again, another example. And I think about the, over the past month as we've heard different God stories and and that are just, just your, they're your God stories. They're, they're what God has been writing in your, in your life. It's just been so amazing uh, to go back and kind of relive some of those with you and, and to walk through that with you. And I know there's, there's hundreds more. And I, I don't say that because I'm a, a cup half full guy, but I really believe it. I believe there's hundreds more God stories yet to be written. Uh, what's your story? What's the canvas of your heart? What's, what's the story of your life that God is etching away some of those pieces that He would take a builder who's finishing up the building of this building? Now, I never, I've, I've heard 
you know, the buildings help brought people in, but never the builder who's putting the roofing sheets on would actually say, hey, I need to check this place out. But, but in that whole process of that, this is an amazing thing when you think that God went through that, all those stages and those processes to bring them back together. I can't, I can't even imagine what the future may be out there. And your life, my life, and the lives that aren't even here, the lives that aren't not even touched yet, that we haven't even been able to impact yet. And, and at the same time, I, we turn the page today. This is a big transition message. We're turning the page on the first decade to the second decade because October 7th will mark our 10-year anniversary of our launch. It's kind of our uh, birthday, if you will. And so as we, as we turn from one decade into the next decade, I really approach the decade with, with, a, with a little bit of fear and trepidation. Now, not necessarily that kind of fear of, oh, we're going to fail, because I, I don't think we're there in the sense that we won't exist. I, 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 I'm, I'm past that. That was the early days. But my fear is that we might go on without God. That we might go on doing our own thing and not even realize that God's not in it. We, we might, God might want to take us here, but we want to stay here. And we have enough resources and we have enough people and we have enough uh, of whatever it needs that we could go on without God. And that would be my, my greatest fear. I, I want us to be aware of what may be the most subtle and yet costly sin in Scripture. The most subtle and the most costly sin. You'll not find this. This is kind of flies under the radar. This is not going to be one of those hot topic messages. It's not one of the Catholic seven deadly sins or one of the Baptist forbidden sins that, that you don't drink, smoke, chew, or dance with those who do. You know, one of those kind of sins. It's not one of those. It's, it's, it's far more subtle than that. It's far more subtle, and, and, and it kind of creeps into a marriage, and it creeps into the home, and it, it creeps into my individual walk with God, and it creeps into the church. And for 20 years of my 20 plus years in ministry, I have never shared one message on this topic. And so it's taking me several months to put my arms around this. And I can tell you when it first came to me, I was actually on vacation this summer and Lori and I were out on the beach and she was sharing some things uh, uh, that she had, God had been teaching her in the Word and, and that I had at the same time was reading Psalm 19. She said, well, that's one of the verses. And so I read it. And it was... And, and, and I'm really kind of wanting you to kind of understand, I was on the beach, okay? That's a great inspirational place to hang out, all right? To study the Word on the beach. And so as I'm sitting here on the beach and, I, and, I, and I'm thinking about Psalm 19, I'm thinking about this passage, and I'm seeing it for the first time, and I've read it a hundred times. But I'm seeing it with fresh eyes. And David prayed against it. He said, I don't want this, this sin to be there. This sin is called the sin of presumption. And again, it's not one of the seven deadlies. It's not one of the, 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 the forbidden Baptist or anything like that. It's just one of those that will subtly slip into the home and slip into the individual and slip into the church that can literally draw the life out of the church. The sin of presumption, David prayed this in Psalm 19, verse 13. He said, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. Do you see that there? That's not one of those things that he's putting, this is a minor sin. This is one of those there's different grades of sin, different levels of sin that some have believed. He calls this sin of presumptuous great 
transgression. He prayed against David. Imagine after God's own heart. He prayed, God, don't let me fall into presumptuous sins. What is it? Saul himself succumbed to sin. If David prayed against the sin, it was probably because he saw in his predecessor, Saul, fall to this sin. And when he fell to this sin, you find in the passage of Scripture in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, you find an entire chapter there where God just removes Saul from the throne. And in that passage, what was it that, that whenever, when Saul, being the king of Israel, assumed or presumed himself to be our right to do his own thing, his own way, and God would automatically send down his blessings. God looks at him and he says this in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. He says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. See, God had told him what he was supposed to do. God had made it clear what he was supposed to do. But he presumed upon God. He did his own thing. It was a good thing. And you look at it in the light and you read 1 Samuel 15. It was a good thing that he did. It wasn't an evil thing. But he presumed upon God's will. Because of you rejected the word of the God, he has also rejected you from being king. This sin is so... so subtle that we miss it. It's so deadly that it can take our very position, our life. The prophets were told that, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Do you see the word presumption coming through and through and David praying against it? Saul, it literally taking away the throne. And in prophets, it would take away their life. The sin of presumption is worthy of studying. And again, I'm sitting here on the beach and I'm sitting here reading Psalm 19 on my phone. And I'm, I'm thinking, what is the sins of presumption? It's obviously more than one, but it's, it's whatever it is, this category of sin needs to be understood. And so since July to the present, I have been diving into this. And you know what? It doesn't take long to dive into a kiddie pool. Because there's not a whole lot in Scripture about this word. This word's only used a few times in all the Hebrew texts. And so you don't necessarily have to, you can't really look at the etymology of the word and kind of get to the root of what it was trying to say. You have to go further than that. You have to look at the context. So the etymology is one away, but you go on and you look at the context. So when this word was used, what was the signs? What were the effects? What happened? When, where, and how did this manifest itself? And probably the clearest, the, the most detailed contextual narrative that we can look at and get a true in-depth picture is in the book of Numbers. So take your Bibles, be fine in the book of Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus... Deuteronomy, Numbers, and uh, are, are, and uh, be finding chapter, Deuteronomy, excuse me, comes after Numbers. Uh, so, you know, just start in the beginning and go right. All right, so uh, Numbers chapter 14 uh, is where we will be. Numbers 14, and I want to look at a, a time that probably is familiar to you. But I want us to understand it in light of this, this subtle sin. Of presumptuousness. Take, for example, you don't think presumptuousness abides in your home? Don't prepare dinner tonight, ladies. There's, there's, a, there's an assumption 
that there's presuming that you will have something on the table tonight or whoever does the cooking in the home. Um, don't bring home a paycheck next month. See, there's a presumption that there will be, there will be resources at the end of the month that we can spend this month's resources because next month will give us a new supply of resources. And see, sometimes we presume upon God that we say, okay, God, this is where I want to go. And so as you start breaking down this word and you start trying to understand it, I try to put it into my own definition. And this is just mine, and you can rework it if you will. But it says this, it's feeling entitled to God's blessings, His favor, while one arrogantly asserts control over his own life. It's like, I'm in one word, entitlement. Have you ever been around somebody who has a sense of entitlement? That they deserve what they, they get or they need, they need to get and they deserve it and you need to give it to them? When you get into that posture with God, you are committing the sin of presumption. God, I did A, B, and C. You need to give me X, Y, and Z. It's just, it has to happen that way. Now, I know there's promises, and I know there's, we claim those promises, and I'm all for that. But there's this thin line between faith and presumption. There's this thin line between claiming the promises of God and being presumptuous on the promises of God. And you're going to have to go in, and you're going to have to peel back the layers of your heart. And we're going to have to peel back the layers of our church's heart right here, right now, and to make sure we are not entering into this sin of presumption. Because what presumption is, in just a very simple word picture, it's when we, when we put ourselves in the driver's seat, but we put God in the hot seat. It's where I'm going to drive here, God. I'm on this joy ride, and I'm going to go here. But God, you've got to pay the tab. It, it, it's I'm, I'm going this direction, God, and I'm going to ask that you will bless it. You know, it's kind of like us giving our will to God and saying, God, wouldn't you now bless this? God, I want this car, I want this house, I want this thing, I want this job, I want whatever it is. Now would you bless it? Instead of going to Him and letting Him drive the car. Giving the keys to Him. See, when we, when we put ourselves in the driver's seat and God in the hot seat, that is the sin of presumption living out. People accept jobs and make career changes committing the sin of presumption. They measure up to what they're looking for in that career change. They know what they want, and they're not going to move until they get it. And then once they get it, it wasn't necessarily what God wanted for them. So again, you're just going to have to just really pull back some layers in your life. Every decision you need to ask yourself, am I committing the sin of presumption? Every decision we make as a church, we need to ask ourselves, are we committing a sin of presumption? In Numbers chapter 14, you have this time and in, in period when the spies have gone in and they've spied out the land and they're supposed to go in and God is going to give them the promised land. But all of a sudden, they pull back. They resist because of the circumstances. They resist. In Numbers 14, we kind of we approach this. And I want to tell you right now, as your pastor, as we turn the page today, as we go to the next decade tomorrow, I'm approaching this with immense amount of fear, an immense amount of prayer, and so much humility to this. And declaring humility, hang with me. I'm declaring myself humble. 
I am approaching this not audaciously and presumptuously. I'm approaching it with tremendous prayer. I hope you are. Whenever Lori and I moved back from Africa, we were in a beautiful situation, in a beautiful community, in a beautiful work. And we, we fenced, since that God was leading us back, it took us one year of praying it through. We have been in the need as a church at Grace Point Church for well over a year. And it's been a year of talking and praying and thinking and examining a lot of different options. And you're going to get, start getting some downloads, big downloads in the next couple of weeks of information that you, you need as we go forward. Understand, we've been praying about this. You've got to be praying about it. You, you, prayer's not a side thing. It is the main thing. Because here's the reality, and I don't want it to happen to us, is the Holy Spirit could leave most churches and they would go on and never skip a beat. I've heard that for years and years, and I've been fearful of that for years and years, is that we might go on without God. Because we have, we're big enough, we have enough resources, we have a building, and we can go on, and we've got the dog and pony show down up here, and we can do it. And that's fearful for me. I don't want that. I don't want that. So when we come to this passage of Scripture, I want us to look at some faces of presumption, okay? What does presumption look like? I look in Webster's Dictionary, there's like four different definitions for presumptuous activity. I think we see at least three different models of presumptuousness here. And so as you're finding Numbers 14, let me give you the first face of presumptuous uh, living. Is that when fear motivates you more than faith leads you. When fear motivates you more than faith leads you. When we play it safe for safety reasons, when we play it safe because safe is safe and risk is risky, then we really need to go in and examine ourselves. When we presume, and here it is, when we presume that our circumstances are greater than our God, we elevate our circumstances to be greater and more powerful than our God. We are now living in the sin of presumption. We need to be very careful about not letting fear rule us when faith is wanting to guide us. I mean, the Lord has said, listen, you can't please God. It's impossible to please God without faith. It is a part of the story. And you're going to hear us talk about expansion. and That's a part of our story, but it's not the end of our story. The expansion is only a means to the end. It is not the end. It is not the end. And as we move forward, I, I remember back to when, before we even had this campus and we were living out of a suitcase called a trailer and we were setting it up week after week and breaking it down week after week. And we were 200 people. And we had this audacious goal of building a campus that would actually facilitate, hold 500 people. And it was 200 people saying we could do this for 500, 200 for 500. Why didn't we wait till we got 500 and then build for 500? Because 200 for 500 were saying, listen, we could do it. I believe God's in it. And there was a tremendous amount of faith. And sometimes I had to pull the reins back on some of the faith movers in the church at that time for fear that we would cross that line to be presumptuous. And so I want us to, to move forward with faith and not fear. 
This is what Oswald Sanders said. He says, a great deal more failure is the result of an excess of caution than a bold experimentation with new ideas. The frontier of the kingdom of God has, were, were never advanced by men and women of caution. Let us beware that we are not men and women of caution. We have taken these months, this month, to go back and to look at story after story. And again, you've only seen five, six, seven stories, I guess, of people's lives that have been changed and God has written into their hearts. But there's so many more. Some bigger, some smaller stories if you want to measure it out. We've reflected, we've renewed, we've revisited, we've relooked, and hopefully it's rekindled. And hopefully it's revived us. In Numbers chapter 13, we find the context that we're looking at here. In Numbers 13, verse 28, the spies have gone in and they've spied out. They've taken 40 days. They've spied out the land. They've come back and they've given a report to Moses. And you might know the story again. Twelve spies go in. Twelve spies come out. Ten spies vote, no, don't go in. We'll die. Two spies, Caleb and Joshua, thus the names of my boys, come out and say, listen, We've got to go in. God's bigger than those giants. He's bigger than the, than, than the obstacles. He's bigger than this. But what the ten were saying is that our circumstances are greater than our God. They were living in fear, motivated by fear rather than in faith in God. And so we have this kind of story unfolding. And so from their own lips, you read in verse 28 of chapter 13, he says, However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak. I don't know who Anak is, but he must be a terrorizing force. The Amalekites dwell in the land, and Negev, and Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell in the sea and along the Jordan. We've spied out the entire, from coast to coast. For all over, we have seen it. And they're, they're ominous, they're scary, and we can't handle them, and we can't beat them. And you come to chapter 14. Now the people respond. And you've got to hear this. This, this. this should quake, cause you to quake in your boots. Verse, chapter 14, verse, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Now what, I can't, I can't fathom what they're saying here. But literally they crave captivity. They crave slavery. Then going through the process and taking the faith journey and climbing up that difficult hill and crossing that dangerous river, they're, they're, they're willing to go back to slavery. And there's a whole message in this right here that I don't have time to develop. Just the idea that some people love slavery to their addictions, to their wounds, to their ways, more than they want to face the freedom in life. Keep going with me in verse 2. Or would we have died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall on the sword? Our, our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. It was a coup d'etat taking place right there in front of Moses and Aaron's eyes. 
when they're blaming Aaron and Moses and God, and they're saying it would have been better for us to stay where we were. And see, the problem happens here is the problem of spiritual dementia. Do you remember back just a few weeks ago when I talked about spiritual dementia? When we suffer from spiritual dementia, it is a... It is a go back and listen to that message. It, it, is a, it is a sign of spiritual weakness. It will literally hamper us into the future, hamper you into the future. Here's a life principle for you. When you forget what God has done, you can't imagine what God can do. When you forget that He divides waters and you cross over on dry land and that He defeats the enemy and that He takes the, the superpower Egypt and He makes them fall on the knees, when, when, when you forget what God has done, then you can't imagine what He can do. We've got to go back. We had to go back. Well, you must go back and you must now examine your own heart. What is he up to? Where is he moving? How is he wanting to work? Look at verse 11 down in verse 14. He says, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? God was broken over this. And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? You know, I'll tell you right now it will be much easier for Grace Point Church to stay right where we're at. It will be much easier, much, much easier than to move forward. And to go where I believe, along with many, if not all, of the leadership of our church, feel like we need to go into the future, and where the impact unreached of the world, and the orphans of the world, and just our neighbors across the street, and, and, and families in, in the, our community, where, where, where we... We need to go. I tell you what, it's going to take a tremendous amount of faith. I can remember when we started the church. I can remember every family. Man, I tell you what, it was like you just count your, your families and, and you just, okay, good, they, they came back. You know, we're meeting in a home and, you know, are we a legitimate church? We literally had people calling us a cult for a while. And, um, and so as we're meeting in this one family, I can remember that they were just, we're just four weeks into this. And I was, every family, okay, you're sticking, good, you're sticking, okay, you're sticking. And this family comes up to me at the end of one of the, our gatherings and they say, you know, we're, we're just not for this. We just, we just need to go to an established church because that's, that would be easier for us. And, of course, it broke my heart. Of course, I said, blessings to you. There's a lot of established churches out there. Go for it. And we were in church planner mode. We needed church planner mentality people and, and here we were going, and, and I just, I'm, I'm just broken, though, that, that this family thought that the calling of the Christian faith was to be easy, was to be safe. Listen, life is risky. Jesus is risky. Living is risky. Loving is risky. Faith is risky. Grace Point Church is going to be risky. There's a faith element that will drive us forward. There was a 19th century theologian, William Newton Clark, who said, Faith is the, is the daring of the soul to go further than we can see. It's being able to say, I'm willing to go where I cannot see and I don't have all the answers. Are you, as a Grace Point family, ready and willing to go there? Able to go there? I'm just along for the ride. I'm just here for the good songs and the, and, 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 and the comfortable messages. Great. Hang out here a while. Now, everybody else, are you ready for the journey? Because this is going to be a climb. 
And we cannot just presume that it's going to be some easy walk in the park among the daisies. See, my fear is this, is that we are going to have the faith for the future. I wonder, are we going to have the faith for the future? It's not, do we have the resources? Do we have the people? Do we have the place? Do we have the land? Do we have the, do we have the vision? Do we have the personnel? Do we? No, we, we are so gifted in every one of those areas. Is that, will the McDaniel family? Will the Hannah family? Will the Grindstaff family? Will the Walker family? Will they have the faith to journey into the future where God is leading? Will we? Number two, we, we commit a sin of presumption whenever we forget life is about His glory and it's not about ours. When we live for self and self alone, then we are getting wrapped up in our own safety and security and comforts and ease, and we forget that it's not about me. All right, you need, you need to go home and you need to study thoroughly Numbers 14. Because these responses of take me back to Egypt and let me die in Egypt, let's get a new leader, all this kind of stuff that's going on is really a display of a heart issue. See, they wanted the promised land. Listen, they wanted the promised land, but they wanted the promised land given to them. They didn't want to fight the battles to go into it, the Hittites and the Amorites. They didn't want to fight. They wanted God to just hand it over to them. And that's, there's, there's a tremendous, because it's not about us. It's about His glory. Numbers chapter 14, verse, uh, verse 21. Go down there. Again, we're just skipping through this chapter, and you can go back and break down the verses even more. But verse 21 says, But truly I live as, as on the, all, the, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. This is the Lord speaking. What does He want? What, what does God want more than anything on the planet? For me to be fat and sassy? For me to be comfortable and warm? For me to have all my wants and desires fulfilled? For me to get the next promotion? And I get mad at God if He doesn't give me the next promotion? Is it really about me? Because when you look at this verse, He says, But truly, I, as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. It's not about me. It's about Him. I know that's really profound. But hang with me. Verse 22. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test, these ten times have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of, of those who despise me shall see it. They literally got mad at God. They literally wanted to give up on God. And here it is. It was all about them. It was all about their comforts. It was all about their security. It was all about their safety. It was all about them. And it wasn't about God's glory. Why would I say that we would take our time, our vacations? Why would I promote us going to a land in West Africa? I just got a call just before coming into this service about how they're in a village right now where there's like three believers and they've actually had villages that have come uh, requesting them, our team that's in, in West Africa right now, asking them there's one believer in this village and there's one believer in this village and there's one believer in this village and they're literally saying, listen, if you're coming to this village, would you come to our village? Because we don't know the stories of Jesus. And yet I sit here and I read, all His glory will fill the earth. Listen, this is bigger than me. This is bigger 
than you and me together. It's about His glory. And if what we do here can magnify His glory there or magnify His glory in an orphan home or in an orphan's heart, then I want to be about that. I want His glory to be known to the ends of the earth and and in everybody's heart. But here's the problem is we presume when we assume God's rightful place. When we put ourselves in the driver's seat, when we put ourselves on the throne, when we make the story of the world about me and I'm the center of the story, then now I'm assuming the position of God's position. It's not about me. God gave you the job you have, gave you the salary you have, the house you have, the car you have, the, the knowledge you have for His glory. And it needs to be about that and we can't, we can't get away from that. Now, if you want to draw a line in the sand, you can. You want to draw a line in those verses right there, you can. Verse 24, it changes. In fact, you might circle the word but in verse 24. It says, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Wait, wait, wait. These ten and everybody else, they're not going to get in. But Caleb, he's different. He's got a different spirit. He understands the big picture. He understands it's about my glory, not his fame, not his position, not, his, not, his, not about him. He's willing to risk his life. And we're going to learn more about Caleb in the next month that is gonna, that's going to inspire you, hopefully, if anything. This is just the beginning. But understand this, these two phrases. He had a different spirit. He had a different spirit. Say it with me. He had a different spirit. Say it again. He had a different spirit. Well, what was that spirit like? Thanks for asking. Okay, here it is. He followed me fully. His spirit was, I'm all in, God. It's all about you, God. My life's about you. My dreams are about you. My home's about you. My family's about you, Lord. I'm all in. And you know what? I know radical, that may seem a little radical. Radical makes people feel real uncomfortable. Radical is only radical when you're nominal. Okay? Radical is normal and biblical when you really look at it. Because it's the same words of Jesus. If you look at Jesus' words, He says, So you cannot become my disciple in Luke 14, 33. You cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. Jesus wants it all on the table. Does that mean you can't, you can't have anything? No. That means the title deed becomes His. That means the mortgage becomes his. That means the bank account becomes his. I mean, it's all his. That means he governs it. He controls it. You listen to him. Doesn't he all give it away? Listen, there are people who make money on their money. Their money works for them. God is able to use that to do beautiful things. Your job. It's not about your job. That job's God's job. You're just paid by them, whoever them is. John chapter 3, verse 30. Listen to what John the Baptist said. He got it. He got it. He was like Caleb. He got it. He followed him fully. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. He must become great, I must become least. There's a paradigm there that I wish to God that I lived out more fully than we all did. Paul, the apostle, said it like this, for me to live is Christ. It defines my life. Yeah, when I die, it's going to be even better. But right now, I'm living... And it's all Christ. That is what the Caleb spirit is. Do you have the Caleb spirit? Because the Caleb spirit isn't about me. It's about Him. It's about His glory. Number three, we become presumptuous when we become reactive instead of 
proactive to God's plan. God called them. He called them and He said, for 40, for 40 days, they go, they, you go and you spy out the land and, and you come back. And you know what God did? And I, God is fair and just and we can question that till, till, till He comes again. But at the end of the day, He sets the bar, okay? So He's fair and just. We can adjust ourselves to Him, not Him adjust to us. What He does is He turns around and He says, listen, all of you, for every day you were in this land and you denied my, my calling, my desire, my plan and faith, for, for every day, that means one year. One year. One to one. One day to one year that you will spend wandering around in the wilderness. You, 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 want, you want to drive the car? They're the keys. I'm getting out. And for 40 years they drove around trying to put God in the hot seat. For 40 years they did this because of the 40 days of denying. And, and, and God, God expects immediate obedience. Immediate. Okay? He's not a harsh, mean God. He's a loving, gracious God. But He doesn't want us meandering through life. Reacting. He wants us proactively into His plan. If you look at verse 40 and following. Verse 40, it says this. And, and, and so what, basically Moses comes and he announces this to the people. He says, listen, because we were people of faith, God's going to let us stay here for the next 40 years. Thank you very much. Now verse 40. And they rose early in the morning and they went up to the heights of the hill country saying, Here we are. We will go up to the place the Lord has promised for we have sinned. Now don't you love it? Once they get the announcement that no, you're going to have to stay for 40 years, now they get righteous. Now, okay, okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, God. Okay, we're going to get right. We're going to do what you want us to do. Okay? A little late now. A little late. We need to be proactive, not reactive. Proactive. When he says, do this, we do it. Go here, we go here. Give this, we give this. Don't get reactive. There's all kinds of jailhouse conversions. Listen, we don't need to be in the jail of wilderness. We need to be proactive. He goes on and he says, But Moses said, Why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord uh, that, that, that you will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you. See, God had left the building. And they didn't even know it. Lest you be struck down before your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are facing, are facing you, and you shall fall by the sword because you have turned back from following the Lord. And the Lord will not be with you. Now notice this next verse. But they presumed, there it is, to go up in the heights of the hill country, although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed the camp. Ouch. Verse 45, And the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and beat them to a pulp. That's my translation. They ran with their tails between their legs. They went up, notice that, without the ark and without Moses. The ark represented the presence of God. When we do anything without the presence of God, we are being presumptuous. So my friends, what do we do now? 
Here we are turning the page into the next decade and you're here and you're a part and maybe you're not. Maybe you're just on the outside and this Friday night you're going to come and maybe check out the North Point new members class whether or not you're going to be a part of that and all that. I understand. You know, and you're not in and you're just checking us out and that's fine. But let me talk to the family. Family? Are we ready to go to the next? Now I'm going to start a study next week in the book of Joshua. About 30,000 feet hitting key passages of scripture that pick up post 40 years. It's going to be important to pick up where the story leaves off. But what do we do from here? Here's three things I want you to jot down. One, if we're going to go out of here this week, and I want this to be a week of preparation, but I want us to to change our life forever, I want you to think big because God is big. All right? Learn to think big because God's big. One of the verses that, oh, excuse me, one of the statements that carried me so much of my mission field experience and even back to starting Grace Point and even back when we, when we built this campus was William Carey, a great missionary who started a movement that is still rippling out today called the Modern Missionary Movement. He said this, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. How awesome it would be for your children and your grandchildren to go through this process over the next month, over the next three years, over the next four years, over the next decade, and they look back on their life in your home and their life around you, and they say, my mother, my grandfather, my, my family set a pace of faith that I want to live on. Number two, you pray hard because God responds to our prayers Now, I don't have time to read this all, but you go down to verse 11 and and 12 and you'll find how God is ready to wipe out the people of Israel. All right? He's ready to annihilate them. Verse 13, Moses prays. He says, God, you can't do this. If you do this, the people of Egypt will see this and your fame won't go there. See, it's about God's fame. He says, you don't want that to happen, God. Please don't let that happen. And now notice what happens then when you skip down to verse 20. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. God responds to prayer. God responds to your prayer. I hope that we are praying, church. I hope that it is not something that as we pass out a prayer guide, it just becomes a, 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 a bulletin insert bulletin or insert inside your Bible. I'm calling us to daily prayer. Minute by minute prayer. We have got to be a church that brings this to... Listen, we can do more than pray, but we can't do more until we pray. You've got this insert that was given to you, hopefully when you came in, or it's our prayer guide for the next few weeks. Let it be one of those things that you you pray it through. We have got to be about prayer. This has got to be on the frontal of our of our hearts and our minds. Number three, if we're preparing and not just uh, presuming upon God, if we're going to be prepared for the future, it's not only think big because God's big, but it's not only pray hard because God responds to our prayer, but stop, adjust, and obey. Whatever God says in the next few weeks into your heart, into your life, stop what you're doing and adjust. Don't be like the people of Israel and do it on your own plan, in your own time, in your own watch. Because I believe God's going to do great and beautiful things through us. 
you're going to write many more God stories in orphan children, in children in Africa that we won't hear until we get see it on the big screen in heaven or we meet them face to face. We have a gift I want to give you today. Our ushers are going to pass them out to you. The band's going to come back up. I want to tell you this story. And this story kind of gripped me. Because this is this dear devoted lady who, who loved God and was serving her church and, and serving her God in a major, major way. And um, why don't you just take one of these forks and, and just hold on to it. But this lady, she got, a, she got to the doctor one day and she got this notice from the doctor that, that, that it was not good. She had literally months to live. And she had options of going for this chemo over here and try this experimental thing over here and da da da, da And nothing, she was not going to do any of it. She, she said, no, I'm going to live out, because it was just a small chance she'd even make it. So she said, I'm going to live out the rest of my life as best I can. So she, what she did is she went immediately. And she went to the hairdresser and she, she said, okay, now I'm going to die in a few months and I want you to help me with my hair. I mean, the hairdresser's eyes got that big. I said, okay. Let's talk about that. I want, you to, I want you to give me the new do. I want a new look. And she went out and she bought a new dress. And, and then she went to the pastor and she said, I'm the pastor. And said, told her, him the news and said, this is, this is what's going to happen. And, and I'm resolved to it and I'm ready, I'm ready to go be with Jesus and I have no problems with it. I want to talk about my service and how it's going to go and how it's going to play out. And, and I, I want this song sang and I, and I want this scripture read and, and I want this done. And, and it was just a, a, an amazing lady of faith. And she said, and when I die, when I'm having my casket and I'm sitting there and, and I'm laying there, would you put a fork in my hand? And that was the first time that pastor had ever been requested of that. Everything else, all the other verses, all the other songs, all the other things that, that came up, why a fork, he said. He said, because I always love coming to the church fellowship dinners and, and whenever the, the person would come by and they would take your plate and they would, they, would, they would take the plate and they would stand up and they would say, hey, listen, keep your fork. I knew something good was coming. God's food was coming. It was cake. It was fudge. It was something. I said, the good stuff was coming. He said, and so when somebody would say, keep your fork, I knew the best was yet to come. And so... He says, whenever I die, I want people to walk by my, 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 my casket. And I want them to see that fork. And I want them to ask, why does she have a fork in her hand? And so sure enough, that's what happened. The funeral came. They sang the songs. They read the passages. They said the words. The eulogy was spoken. But everybody that came by looked at one another. And they said, well, why was the fork there? And the pastor stood up in the eulogy and he said this. He said, because this lady knew the best was yet to come. Now, I know that'd be a great story to tell at somebody's funeral. But you know what? I think it's a great story to tell as we close out one decade. Because I want you to hold on to this fork. You can eat off this fork. You can throw this fork away. You can let your kids play in the sand with this fork. I don't care what you do with it. But I want you to think about it all week long. As if you were waiting for the next serving of the pie. That the best is yet to come for our church. I really believe it. Would you stand? Would you declare it today? And would you sing with us today as we declare that the best is yet to come and what God's going to do?